0: Good afternoon everyone, it's wonderful to see so many of you here this afternoon, thank you for joining us here at the National Library. I'm Kathy Pilgrim, the Assistant Director of the Executive and Public Programs Division. As we begin today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. I would also like to acknowledge the Australian History Association and delegates attending the 2018 conference here in Canberra over the next few days. We're delighted to be represented in the conference program and that you have joined us here this afternoon. 1968 was a momentous year. The Vietnam War was raging. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. In Australia, the search for Prime Minister Harold Holt, who disappeared off Cheviot Beach, was called off and a new Prime Minister was sworn in. And most importantly, the doors to this fantastic National Library of Australia building were open for the first time. Our exhibition, 1968 Changing Times, reflects on what was happening in the world, Australia, and in Canberra in that year. If you haven't had a chance to see the exhibition yet, I hope you'll join our wonderful curators after tonight's event downstairs in our exhibition galleries. But first, the Library's Director of Exhibitions, Dr Guy Hansen, and our exhibition curators, Dr Grace Blakely Carroll and Dr Walter Kudrich, will discuss the significance of 1968 as we look back 50 years and at the challenges of sharing our history through the prism of an exhibition. The conversation will be guided by Dr. Ben Mercer from the School of History at the Australian National University. So please join me in welcoming Guy, Grace, Walter and Ben this afternoon.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Kat. Well, welcome to all of you for this uh, discussion about 1968 and about the 1968 exhibition. This is in fact the third panel of the day in (laughs) a stream on 1968 at the Australian Historical Association Conference. And it's uh, very appropriately here at the National Library uh, to coincide with the exhibition. And given this is a conference in which there is many much discussions about the question of scale, we're going to begin with a 32nd version of 1968 uh, by the ad for the, the exhibition. we we'll So now we've had uh, 30 seconds. We now have about 50 minutes to, to pull that <laughs> apart and, and work out what was missing. So we're going to run this as a, as a conversation with uh, the three curators of the exhibition and we're going to have a opportunity towards the end of this discussion to have questions from the audience. So please keep them in mind as we have a discussion. So I'm going to begin, I think, with, with the, the broadest question to and Guy, is uh, why did the NLA do this show?
2: Oh, I think Kathy uh, sort of mentioned uh, that uh, 1968 was the year that the National Library of Australia, this building that we're in, uh, open to the public and and that was a, a pretty um, important event obviously for this institution's history because this is our permanent home but it was also a very important event for Canberra because uh, if you think back to 1968 and if you could imagine yourself looking in that direction there what would, you would see is basically paddocks heading out towards Derry Flat and Canberra in 1968 was fairly in some ways, quite a desolate place. Not much is going on out there. The lake has only just been put in. You've got Parliament House over there. You do have the War Memorial over there. You have some of the administrative buildings, but the parliamentary triangle is quite bare, and in many ways, the city has still got a long way to go in terms of maturing as a national capital. And I think the opening of this building was a really important milestone in Canberra coming of age, and I think also an important milestone for uh, the Commonwealth (laughs) of Australia, because opening... Um, A national library is a real expression of uh, the confidence of your nation and the confidence uh, of of having those type of cultural institutions, having that kind of infrastructure uh, which uh, a a sort of a society should have. So in many ways, this 50th anniversary is a very important anniversary for the National Library of Australia. And it's very appropriate we should celebrate that. And the challenge uh, for the exhibitions team was how to do that in a way which could perhaps... Celebrate that moment, which of course is of intense interest to us here in in the library, but also perhaps build out into some... some other ideas. And we're very lucky that 1968 isn't only an important year for the National Library, but it's a very important year for the world, and it's a very iconic year um, because of events in America, as we've we've just seen in the short ad, and also events in Europe uh, and in other parts of the world. So there's a great opportunity to zero in on Canberra and look at what was happening uh, with the opening of, of the library, then move out slightly and have a look at what was happening in Australia, and then move out one more time and have a look at what was happening um, in, in, in the world. And, and I think those things came together very nicely to give us a reason to do this exhibition. So it's, it's part of our birthday celebrations here at the library, but it's also a great opportunity to do a really interesting uh, history <laughs> exhibition. So that's, in a nutshell, why we did it. Okay.
1: And so I guess a question building on this is how did you use the uh, NLA collection to do the
0: show?
2: Well, amongst the three of us, um, we pretty much conducted a survey of the collection. So, I got the great pleasure of going through uh, the, um, uh, the the music collection, uh, looking at, at the sheet music. Uh, the library has a fantastic sheet music collection. We used to have a, a very good vinyl collection, but unfortunately, that moved on at a certain point. But I was able to go through and find some of the sheet music from 1968, and and you know the. The, the Rolling Stones and The Beatles and um, all those big hits are represented in that collection. And I also got to look at the international material and some of the Australian material. Um, Walter, you, what did you look at in the collections?
3: Guy, I looked at a, a fair range of material from the library's collections. Uh, I began with the uh, manuscript collection because I was doing uh, the Vietnam War and uh, Australian attitudes towards the Vietnam War. That was... Fairly standard uh, archival research, but uh, there were some really interesting uh, uh, items in it. Uh, But I also uh, moved on to uh, popular culture, as well as uh, uh, the Vietnam War uh, in Australia in 1968, and I used periodicals for for that research. Um, There was a pop music magazine, which some of you will remember, uh, the youth-orientated magazine Go Set, um, which I uh, had a lot of fun looking through and finding some, some interesting stuff. Um, one thing I hadn't known uh, about that was that Ian Meldrum, uh, who's well-known now, um, wrote for Go Set in, in, in 1968. And um, I also used the library's ephemera collection uh, in respect of and connection with popular culture. Uh, the ephemera collection was really interesting um, consisted largely of brochures, stuff which wasn't meant to be collected, but (coughs) which we have done anyway. So I got some brochures, for example, on various overseas tours. Um, uh, There was a tour by the Monkees, another one by The Who and the Small Faces, Uh, and uh, there was also a tour by the Bizarre Black and White Minstrel Show, uh, which some of you will remember, the bizarre and overtly racist Black and White Minstrel Show. So uh, in in short, uh, a, a full range of the of the library's collections.
2: Grace, what did you have a look at?
4: My main focus was on um, collections related to the building of the library and the history of the library. Um, I really enjoyed going through those um, in manuscripts, also in the pictures collection. Um, Some some Perhaps more surprising collections to discover um, were the Heritage Heritage Furniture Collection, so all of our original furniture designed um, by Fred Ward, who of course was um, poached from the ANU, so you might have I'm not sure whereabouts you're located at the ANU, but um, at the conference you might have been seeing some of Fred's furniture, which is still around, um, and also the heritage building plans collection. Um, So to look at all the original architectural plans that are still used by our building services team today.
1: So I guess one question is, any other major surprising finds that you found in the collections? And perhaps another one would be, is there something that you found that you would have loved to include in the exhibition but couldn't because of the chronological year?
2: Well, I think one thing which Grace and I spent a lot of time trying, we hoped we could pin down, was we, we wanted to have some material about flares in 1968. and. Um, And we had some wonderful posters which weren't dated um, of uh, sort of uh, men in flared jeans and they looked incredible, beautiful posters. But of course, as we did our archival research, we sort of discovered that flares weren't really a big thing in 1968. There was more silver straight-legged jeans, so that was unfortunate that fashion hadn't quite caught up with our own <laughs> interpretation of uh, of memory. So we had to, for sake of historical accuracy, not include the flares. Exactly.
4: We do have the mini-dress, so mini-coat, <laughs> uh, I should say, by Proactin. So there's some uh, fashion there and also... Um drawing on our collection of fashion photographs, which is quite strong as well.
3: As we can see with what Grace is wearing now. Yes, <laughs> not, not, a, not a collection item, just in spirit, yeah. yes.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, it's very interesting, I think, that our idea of 68 is often different to what we actually discover when we look at it. So perhaps another question would be is how do each of you relate to 1968?
2: Well, I was four in 1968, and my major memory of 1968 um, uh, I had to think hard because there 's always this danger of you kind of reconstructing memories uh, when you 're asked to to remember um, but i 'm very sure i 've got a very strong memory of hearing um, the song by the Irish Rovers uh, about the unicorn who 's left behind who doesn 't get onto the ark and i, I 'm I'm, I'm certain that, that I, I remember that very clearly and I, thanks to walter 's researcher, he reminded me that that song was a hit in 1968. So in fact, I, I insisted on its inclusion in <laughs> the soundtrack. <laughs> that's right. so, uh, that's, that's, um, so I was quite young, but uh, um, and a little bit further on, I, I, I think um, I became very interested in the 1960s because of the music and the popular culture, and um, I think for me, the thing that uh, really sticks with me is the uh, Apollo mission and the men in mission control in their white shirts and their ties. Mm-hmm. Um, Striving to explore that—that—that that, that for me is kind of captures uh, 1968 for me. I don't know what, what do you guys relate to in 1968?
3: Well, um, I like you guys was uh, was alive in 1968. Um, I'm a little bit older than you, and I can remember it quite vividly. I was I was a, I was a, a primary school uh, child at the time. Uh, I have. Like, like all kids, I think I, I have a kind of a scattergun memory of, of those times, some, some some strong, some things I completely missed. Um, perhaps my dominant memory of 1968 uh, is a school excursion. Uh, I, I was in primary school in Gladesville, and we went to the, the museum in College Street uh, in Sydney by bus. Uh, as we were going to, towards the, the museum, you go past Hyde Park. Uh, Bus school are full of school kids, and somebody yells out one of the school kids, look, hippies. Um, I'd never seen a hippie before. We'd we'd seen them on TV, um, heard about them, but we'd never seen them in the flesh. Um, This really sums up the times, I think. Um, So I saw a group of people walking through Hyde Park in flares, They they did, in fact, have flares. (laughs) (laughs) I think this could be a (laughs) reconstructed. Like everything, bro. Um, (laughs) Flares, long hair, uh, and also sheepskin jackets. Um, Now, I've since discovered that sheepskin jackets aren't a sine qua non of hippiness, um, but that association is fixed, permanent in my mind. Now, I can remember 1968, of course. Um, This, in fact. Uh, gives rise to certain, I guess, philosophical, conceptual, historiographical problems because it's very easy, and I think Guy will, will uh, agree with me in this, very easy when you can remember stuff, uh, when, when the, the period is not very far away, very easy to slip into a, a, a cloying, self-referential kind of nostalgia. So I found myself that I had to strive uh, to present a sense of historicity in this, uh, in this exhibition, a sense of difference between the, the
0: present and, and the past.
4: Grace, so, um, I wasn't alive in sixty-eight. <laughs> I was. Um, what a relief! I hear you all say. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was. Yeah, um, so I was born in nineteen eighty-eight. So um, it's yeah, not a period um, that I have lived experience of. But um, obviously. Um, it's something a few that I've heard about. And I suppose when I think of what I knew about 1968 before doing this exhibition, um, it would be things like feminism um, in the 1960s, the protests at the Sorbonne, um, and also um, I would say popular culture, music and fashion. Um, the sort of retro um, look is very and just retro culture is very popular at the moment, particularly um, for millennials like myself. Um, so, for me, I actually really enjoyed working alongside people who, you know, had some memories of this <laughs> Thanks, um, Grace. You're not just saying that, are you? <laughs> okay. um, because I sort of feel like I have a much richer understanding mm. of the period now through through doing this this exhibition.
1: Yeah. I suppose one of the other features of 1968 that we see in the ad and we see in all the discussions today is this balance between a set of international events right around the world and the local. So how do you balance in the exhibition, the international and the local? There's, there's clearly um, a de- great deal of treatment of the United States in the exhibition. I and mean, What's your thinking there?
2: I, I have to admit that that's actually one of the big challenges of this show. There's many things from 1968 which are not there. So, for example, there are events in Ireland, there are events in um, uh, Germany, there are events in Japan, which are very significant, which are not represented um, in the exhibition. And uh, it just... It, it, it is... Like, the challenge is, you take, for example, the uh, Paris riots. We ended up... I actually did research and found something like 10 very interesting posters um, from Paris 68, which I would have loved to use, and in the end, I had room for one. Um, and I was... The power of uh, American culture is very evident in the exhi- exhibition. There's more American objects um, than any other. Um, uh, well, no, there's more Australian objects and, and library objects, but if, in the international section, America does dominate. Um, uh, and I think it's just the d- drama of the events in, in America with uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and the election of Nixon uh, uh, just forced... They sort of push their way through the door into the exhibition because they're they're very memorable and very uh, attractive items and when you're a curator you can't help but use the things which really have punched through. Um, We also, in terms of, uh, because it's a library, we wanted to show Walter mentioned periodicals and we wanted to have um, major uh, magazines and I did look at a range of um, English language magazines from around the world, but in the end I did go for Time magazine and... um, Life magazine, and for two reasons, because Time and Life were syndicated right across the English-speaking world. They genuinely were international journals with a massive readership. Um, But Time is fantastic because its covers become like a series of time capsules, and Life is fantastic because of the photojournalism. So, again, um, as a curator, you have to try and find these objects which really speak to what you're trying to say and do it in a way which is pleasing and interesting to the audience. Um, and I have to balance that with the cloying nostalgia, <laughs> which uh, Walter talks about. And, and, and you, as an audience, can be the judge of where we came down. But I don't know what you guys think of, um, of things we left in or didn't, um, and, and how we incorporated the international context.
3: Well, I, I, I would agree with you guys, surprisingly. Um, I think we bu- must bear in mind the power and the, the pervasiveness of, of, of America and Americanness at the time not only in international events, of course, which had repercussions uh, throughout the world. Um, I remember uh, uh, as a child watching uh, the TV news, of course, with, with my mother and uh, being moved by uh, the Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King, uh, 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 funeral and so forth. Um, we should also note popular culture here, the uh, importance of, when we're talking about American, that's one of my favourite TV shows. Sorry to be going on about TVs. Um, uh, TV shows was Hogan's Heroes, Um, uh, So, uh, we were dominated to a large extent by America and and Americanness. Um, So I I, I think we need to, and we have done to some extent, uh, reflected that.
4: And and actually, America came up in my research about the library and actually there was sort of actively looking at American libraries for inspiration for for this library, for the architecture, um, which I thought was really interesting as well, sort of, uh, whereas, you know, previous times, perhaps there would have been more of a, a look towards what was happening in Britain, whereas very much in sort of this project, and an American library expert, Dr. Kaiser Metcalf, was actually brought out to sort of advise on the project too. So I think that perhaps reflects some of the other things that were happening in Australia and in the world at the time and the influence of America.
2: So from architectural history perspective, I think you can see this building as very much um, inspired by American modernism um, and um when we have American scholar, I, we had a, an American scholar. I took around the exhibition. He said, "It reminds me of the Kennedy Center. It's sort of like it's got a, it, it's got the clean lines. It's got other influences, like which an, grace an
4: American take on sort of classicism meets modernism, mm. if you like, a yeah. sort of clean view of, of classicism."
2: So the Americans mm. win, Ben. Mm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so from America, then let's go back to Australia. Right? <laughs> so what did you look at in terms of Australian literature?
2: Well. well Just just on Australia, one interesting thing is um, something which didn't happen in 1968, but which is in the exhibition, um, is the disappearance of Harold Holt, which uh, quite irritatingly happened in December (laughs) 1967. Um, But we had to put it in the exhibition because it really, in terms of Australian politics, it really drives what happens in Australia in 1968. And so Holt goes missing in December, um, and they, they know that he's gone. They call off the search... But it's in January that Gorton becomes the Prime Minister. So there's one of those things where we have to expand out um, 1968. And I have to thank Archives, um, Australian archives for lending us um, some really key material relating to the disappearance of Harold Holt, um, including um, the bag that he took away on that weekend, which had all of his prime ministerial documents um, in it as he went away for his weekend down the coast. Um, and uh, I find that quite a moving object and we've juxtaposed that in the exhibition with the uh, lovely... I think it's a Max Dupain portrait of... I'm not...
4: Athel Schmidt. Sorry,
2: Athol Schmidt portrait of Harold Holt, which is a very sombre portrait. Um, and they, they're quite powerful. They're a personal object combined with this very powerful portrait um, and combined with some of the archival material like the Cabinet decision to stop the search um, and Gorton's announcement um, that he's become the leader of the Liberal Party... Uh, I, I think those those things are really interesting and powerful Australian objects. But as we go into the exhibition, we did um, Walter did, did some good uh, research on broader Australian popular culture, and, and Grace, you did some stuff on literature in relation to 1968. Yes, too.
4: Uh, yeah, and actually Walter and I worked together, um, with some input from Guy on the the literature showcase, and in that showcase we were really trying to look at different forms of writing, so fiction, non-fiction, got um, poetry. An Ivan Southall, you know, children's book, um, those sorts of things, and, and a play by Tom Keneally, um, and so what was sort of coming up in in our research um, were a, a couple of things. Um, I guess this kind of um, movement towards a sort of great sort of pride in Australian literature and people increasingly staying in Australia, less less of the expatriate sort of um, uh, sort of focus and uh, sort of grassroots interest. Um, people like Judith Wright. Um, Quite influential, sort of internationally, but also in Australia, and um, sort of people kind of having conversations with each other, I guess, through their works. And of course, um, it's the well, last year, um or this year I believe is the 50th anniversary of Frank Hardy's um, "Unlucky Australians." So you get somebody like Frank Hardy <coughs> writing about you know the experience of of Indigenous Indigenous peoples, um, and then the um, the Tom Keneally book that won the um, Miles Franklin that year. Um, if you want to speak about yeah. that?
3: Oh, very briefly. Um, I don't yeah. want to steal your thunder. Of oh course. no, I, I mean I just
4: think it's quite interesting. We're <laughs> yeah. talking about um, religion in 1968 sure. yes, as thanks. well. Was another sort of theme that came up quite a lot.
3: Yeah, thanks, Grace. Um, Grace did most of the work in literature. I just uh, uh, looked at two works, both by uh, Thomas Keneally. One was a novel, uh, Three Cheers for the Paraclete," which was published in 1968. The Paraclete in Catholic theology is a name for the Holy Spirit, uh, and the book is based on. Keneally's experiences as a, as a training priest. It's sometimes referred to as a, a comic novel, which makes you expect something like Lucky Jim. Mm. Uh, it's not really, if, if I had to uh, attribute a genre to it, I'd, I'd probably uh, say it was uh, serious satire or realistic satire. It, it's about the Catholic Church's um, inability to uh, move with the times in what was perceived to be a period of change about the Catholic Church's institutional and uh, doctrinal uh, rigidity. Um, And in 1968, of course, as as Grace alluded to, we have an expectation of change within Catholicism and elsewhere. Uh, An expectation of change was thwarted in 68 by the papal encyclical uh, Humanae Vitae, which, in effect, banned uh, the contraceptive pill. The the other work by Kennedy I looked at uh, very briefly was I thought really interesting because it was an unpublished work, a play called Childermass. Childermass is a reference to Herod's Massacre of the Innocents uh, in the New Testament in, in, in Matthew. Um, it was uh, commissioned by an anti-Vietnam war group. Uh, it's a strange work. It has. Uh, it was performed at, uh, at the Altote Theatre in Sydney and even visited Canberra, I, I believe. It's a really weird work. Uh, uh, it has a a poem by Judith Wright, uh, which I think Grace alluded to. Um, it uh, has a kind of a Brechtian vibe to it, which is OK, you'd expect that, but it has a lot of um, heavy allegory in it. Um, stuff I'm kind of familiar with, because I'm, I'm a medievalist uh, originally, but it has themes from Arthurian literature. It has ends of end-of-days apocalypticism. Uh, it was no surprise to me to learn that... Most audiences were mystified by it, um, uh, especially, I suspect, uh, in, in, in regional Australia where it did tour. Um, I read a review of it, and it said that uh, many people in the audiences were left wondering what it was actually about. Um, they would have expected, no doubt, a, a straightforward or straightforwardish anti-Vietnam war mm-hmm. sentiment, but um, they got something completely, uh, completely different, mm-hmm. which was interesting itself.
2: I think another interesting thing about the literature and books, both fiction and non-fiction, published this year is uh, um, something which Donald ha- Horn referred to as the new nationalism, which was uh, Australian writers were becoming very interested in writing about Australia and making statements and generalisations about Australian culture. So you have um, Donald Horn's Lucky Country is, is earlier than... Um, 1968, but a new edition is published in 1968, partly because it's so successful and it's recognised as being the book about Australia in the 1960s. And you also have other writers like Craig McGregor, um, who writes a series of books around this time, and there's, um, I think it's called Politics and Pop, Um, there's a little book of essays in there, and they're very interesting because they're they're kind of... um, they, re- they really are interrogating what it means to be Australian, which is a question we got very sick of mm. <laughs> over the next 10, 20 years. But in 1968, people seriously were engaging in that mm. question of what does it mean to be Australian.
4: And I should say also that is also explored through mm. journals and many of them are still in print today, like Quad- Quadrant and Mianjin. And, um, and they were quite influential at the time as well and they sort of a voice um, or, or platform through which some of these ideas were explored.
1: Well, one of the other big questions has been coming out in the 1960s, as we've already seen with contraception and with issues of feminism, is questions of gender. So how did you deal with that in the exhibition?
4: Well, I mainly looked at, um, so I did the display on um, equal pay, and it's sort of mm-hmm. quite close to the, the display on the encyclical, um, as well, and what I found really interesting was a couple of things. Um, one that some of the issues that were discussed there are still being discussed today. Obviously, there's been some progress, but particularly with this idea of equal pay, um, I found some really wonderful ephemera in the Riley collection. Um, and one of the one of the pieces of ephemera I found was a little sort of cartoon, and it was a, a takeoff of the Flintstones, and it was saying, you know, leave Dad to mind the kids and come and come to this protest. So that idea of, you know, get get the father more involved in, in the childcare, um, you know, to sort of give the women space to kind of come and, and, and be involved in, in this campaign. And also it's something else that was coming up was this idea of, well, what is equal pay and what, you know, how do we um, sort of campaign for, for women's work, if, if you like, want for a better term, or work predominantly undertaken by women to be seen as... as um, on an equal playing field as the sort of work predominantly done by men, and I've just noted that in sort of in the media, even in the last six months, some of these ideas are still being played out. And it's in late 19 uh, in 1967 when the ban on married women having substantive positions in the federal public service is lifted. So, um, and obviously that's before the focus that we're looking at in the exhibition. But there's a story that we tell of a very influential uh, librarian, Pauline Fanning who had been caught up in in that process and actually sort of was considered so important that she was still employed. And it wasn't that women couldn't be employed, they just couldn't have substantive positions. And generally, the women weren't employed after they got married. Um, But she sort of worked largely from home, um, but was very influential and worked very closely with Sir Harold White, the national librarian. And as soon as that ban was lifted, she was sort of promoted to the highest level that they could promote her to and ended up being a, a hugely significant um, librarian, also assisted a number of people, including Manning Clark, with research. And it's a very important figure in the Australian humanities. So it's sort of nice to be able to tell that story within the context of, of gender at the time.
1: And one of the other, I suppose, major fronts of protest in the 1960s, and particularly in 68, is Vietnam. And how do you approach a topic like that? It has a fair space in the exhibition.
3: Uh, yes, um, it is a huge topic. Um, one obviously needs a starting point or, or a focus. I wanted to do something different from what another well-known institution in Canberra has done in respect of the Vietnam War. I wanted to uh, focus on Australia and especially on opposition to, to the war. I found that the library's collections were great for that, uh, that, that approach not least because there was a really interesting archive from the Save Our Sons movement, um, which uh, formed in, in sixty five and lasted through the, the moratorium period. Uh, uh, I, it, it still was something that needed uh, focus. Uh, so I, early on in my research, I found a, a brochure by a Melbourne uh, activist, a uh, labour activist and unionist uh, named Bertha Walker, in which she talked about... It was an uh, anti-conscription document made in 1968, but she talked about an anti-conscription tradition in Australia. I was interested in that, um, and I felt that that might be a good thing to be thinking about, um, contrasting the situation in World War I, which she was referring to in respect of the um, uh, defeat of the uh, conscription referenda and what was happening in, uh, in 1968 or I- in the 1960s. Um, I think, uh, really, that there are more dissimilarities than continuities. I'm not sure whether I ultimately have to agree with, uh, with Bertha Walker in regarding a tradition. When we're talking about the 60s, we're talking about um, a different context, of course. In World War I, most of the um, anti-war and anti-conscription uh, feeling takes place along took place along the lines determined by class and religion, which were more or less the same thing. Uh, in, in the Vietnam period, you've got uh, a much more fragmented uh, anti-war and anti-conscription movement or movements. You've got a couple of new things happening, uh, youth culture, of course, uh, and also the emergence of universities uh, and university life, universities being a site for anti-war activity. Uh, And I found that the the collections, uh, or the stuff that I I found in the collections, reflected that uh, kind of uh, fragmented, um, uh, 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 non-monolithic sensibility in regard to uh, anti-war feelings. For example, we've got um, a brochure produced by uh, Sydney University students in 1968, which simply says, make love, not war. Uh, and it has a a line drawing of figures sitting around smoking huge spliffs, Um, and surprisingly not in sheepskin jackets. Um, But we also have a a brochure produced by the Communist Party of Australia. You also have, uh, during the the 1960s and especially during 1968, the emergence of the individual conscientious objector. Somebody like Simon Townsend, whom we feature in, in our exhibition, Uh, who doesn't rely on the authority of um, of social structures, institutions, religion, uh, comes up as an individual with a very compelling anti-conscription case of of, of his own. So uh, I think, too, that when we're talking about um, anti-Vietnam War sentiment in Australia, we can talk about uh, a, a kind of a change. It has a history of its own, And 1968 is an important point in that. We all know that 1968 is an important point in the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive and so forth, but it's also an important point uh, in uh, activism against and sentiment against conscription and the Vietnam War in Australia. And I discovered that uh, there was a Morgan Gallup poll taken in December 1968, which showed that for the first time, the majority of Australians no longer were in favour of our involvement in the Vietnam War. So I think to me that emphasised um, not only the, the fragmentation of the anti-war sentiment, but uh, the, the, the idea that 1968 was a period of changing times.
2: We, I think one of the really uh, wonderful bits of serendipity or the, the, the really fun of being a researcher sometimes was we, were, we, we had the Save Our Sons collection, which was a fantastic resource. And while we were doing the research, we were obliged to seek permission to display items um, from uh, the son of the person who donated the collection. And um, in the t- telephone conversation with him, it became uh, he said, Oh, I happen to have a, a banner which my mother had from the um, from that, that period. Would you be interested in that as well? And it turned out to be this beautiful protest banner saying, save our sons. Um, Gorgeous, sort of been rolled up virtually since the late 1960s in in somebody's house. And so we were able to get that banner and bring it here. And then with a little bit more research, we were able to find a photograph of um, a a, a really interesting photograph of some middle-class women with hats and gloves standing in front of the Army recruitment station in Marrickville in Sydney. Very recognisable suburban backdrop with that banner. So in the exhibition, we have that. There's a large photo mural, and we actually have the real banner there, which I think is a really powerful combination of um, where you can bring the evidence together in a way which uh, um, makes quite a powerful statement. And I do like the way that when we look at Australia in 1968, we're looking at the opposition or the development of opposition to conscription rather than perhaps looking at what's happening militarily in Vietnam. Though we do mention that, but we, we obviously, I think Walter's referring, if you want to find out about that, the War Memorial does that very well. We didn't need to do it.
1: Well of course the other, the other major event we know in, in 1968 is the National Library so how do you integrate the history of the library into the exhibition
4: so that's actually something that guy and I discussed quite a lot and one of the things we were you know really concerned with was you know gosh you know how do we make these uh, the three sections you know the world Australia and the library which is sort of how we've kind of framed it, how do we make them sort of speak to each other so it doesn't feel like you're entering into a different exhibition because, of course, although you're exploring different themes, it's almost like a book, you know, all the chapters need to weave together so that people are taken through and it all makes sense. And so one of the ways that we we did that was we sort of focused a bit more on Canberra, more broadly, looking at the the development of Canberra um, under the National Capital Development um, Commission and um, debate around the siting of New Parliament House, which was happening in 1968, um, to sort of look at this idea of nation building and how political leaders such as Menzies, although he was no longer Prime Minister in 68, is very involved in getting the Library Building off the ground. Um, ha- the sort of the political, I suppose, agenda behind um, developing Canberra, but also developing a really impressive. Um, cultural institution that would be a great symbol of Australian culture, that people from around the world would come to um, to to sort of access our collections but also just to sort of, you know, experience Australian culture. Um, And I think that that was a way that um, sort of enabled you to sort of come from the other parts of the exhibition into the story of the library, hopefully, um, in a more sort of fluid way.
2: Yeah, it's like I I always tell people it's like a series of Russian dolls. We have the world, inside the world is Australia, and inside Australia is Canberra, and of course the tiniest Russian doll at the bottom, though so it's a third of the exhibition, is, uh, is the library. But the most important one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, clearly for us it's extremely big important, pieces. but I, I think it, it's not a, I, I, per, I hope that as you go through, it's not a big leap to get down to, to that, because when you're actually looking at the, um, the library material, it's it's so 1960s when you look at the drawings of the rooms like I I um, some of the, the sort of renderings of what a particular room would look like I, I describe them as madmen drawings because they do look like scenes of of um, of, from Mad Men and you have, um, you have you know, like the men in the ties and the suits. It's well,
4: the men are in the council room. There aren't any women in There's the council There's no women room.
2: in the council room. And, you mm-hmm.
4: know, Asian mm-hmm. collections is called Oriental Studies. So there, are, there are some things there that just, yeah, immediately it sort of leaps out at you. that oh, Okay, yeah. things have changed since 1968. And,
2: and the, the good thing is you can have a very light curatorial hand. You don't have to be didactic about these things. You can let the objects sort of speak. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think one of the things I really like about the show is people come into it with so many ideas about 1968 that we're really just assembling a set of materials in a, hopefully, an attractive and logical fashion, but then they have their own conversation as they go through and their own discussions. And um, I hope those discussions go on back out into the car park and in the car and on the way home. (laughs) Um, So that's sort of like the knowledge-making isn't just in the exhibition. It's sort of like just an invitation to start a conversation about 1968.
1: Well, now we're, now we're talking about Mad Men. I think I probably <laughs> would to ask that how do you into, integrate television the role of TV into the exhibition?
2: Well, Walter watches a lot of TV. So <laughs> I, thought, I thought he'd be a good person to do that.
3: I, uh, I moved down to uh, Australia from New Guinea when I was uh, a child and there was no television there. Um, and when I di- uh, moved to Sydney, I discovered TV. This was in 1966. and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I did very little... Uh, other than watch television for a number of years which
2: is... in preparation
3: for this. That's situation. right. Yes, <laughs> excellent uh, preliminary research. Uh, no, it's a it's an interesting period for television. I have since realised um, television had become in Australia a national phenomenon by 1968 uh, and a dominant f- uh, medium as well. We all know that television began in in, in Australia in in 56, but it wasn't until the early 60s with a proliferation of regional TV stations, that it did uh, become a truly national phenomenon. Um, and we tend to forget the, uh, the media that it rendered obsolete or, or, or obsolescent. Almost uh, overnight, or within a couple of years anyway, television was the, the dominant way in which people received information and the dominant way in which people were, were entertained. And I think this in turn affected people's consciousnesses um maybe uh, affected the Australian psyche too it's no surprise to know that at this very stage we've got the Canadian media philosopher Marshall McLuhan talking about the effect or the relationship between the medium and the processes of human cognition and consciousness um, so I think you talked about um, Australian uh, and Australian consciousness in respect of literature. I think you can see one. Um, in uh, television as well at the time. I, in my research, I came across a uh, a little snippet which I really liked, not least because it has superb Hegelian overtones. It said that in the 1960s, Australia, for the first time, recognised itself uh, through television. Mm. There was uh, a, pre- a preponderance of, of overseas uh, content, though, um, uh, English, surprisingly, uh, 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 but also American. But you did have local uh, news and current affairs shows, but also, most importantly, local dramas. Um, and it's in things like Homicide that this process of Australian uh, uh, identity uh, becoming apparent, uh, the argument runs, is seen. Uh, you'd see uh, Australian characters, um, Australian scenes. Um, when we're talking about Australianness and 1968, though, um, you inevitably have to come to Skippy. Um, Skippy was made in, in 1968, uh, and it was made with an overseas audience in mind. It was a big, for the time, it was a very big budget uh, thing. Uh, so we've got not only a consciousness of Australia and Australianness, we've got those things at the time, I think, being exported. And I would maintain in a new way for the first time. Um, it was immensely popular overseas, Skippy. I think it was aired in 100 or so uh, countries. Uh, but I think when we're talking about Skippy, um, I have myself a, a sense of unease and a sense of, um, I guess, historicity again, because these are this is an animal exploitation show. It's uh, a formula which the, the makers of Skippy borrowed from America where you had shows like Lassie, Flipper, Gentle Ben. uh, Making these shows involved, um, I've got to be honest about this, involved significant animal cruelty, uh, to the extent that I hope uh, these shows could not be made today. So I think we do have a sense of, uh, of historical difference there.
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting that if Australia recognises itself by TV in '68, mm. whether we still recognise ourselves in the exhibition. And I guess more broadly, what do you think people take away from the exhibition? What does it mean to people? And is it more than, or what is it, what more than, other than nostalgia, what yes. people take away?
2: I do wonder about that. Um, and it's very interesting to read the comments book, uh, and we've also conducted quite an extensive. I think something like 600 um, surveys have been done now, and I think the strongest comment we're getting from people uh, is that they love the music, uh, and the use of music in the exhibition really has a lot has a lot of impact and, and takes people to a place. I've been telling people it's the only exhibition I've seen where I walk in and because I, I often go in and lurk and watch <laughs> people um, and. Uh, but I often see people dancing in the 1968 <laughs> exhibition, completely self-consciously. They're just standing in front of an object. and Members just, of staff, is it? Not usually. But, it's, <laughs> it's sort of, uh, but it is quite interesting that they become absorbed there, in the moment, it? and it's very powerful. And mm. um, then you read the comments in the book. And so for people who were, say, young adults or teenagers in 1968... I think the experience is intensely nostalgic. I have no doubt about that at all. Um, I like to think that nostalgia is, however, a useful way into a topic. And you can open up some other uh, other stories. And, And I think there are some challenges there and some other things for people to look at. So hopefully we go... Nostalgia is definitely there, but hopefully we also... Um, ask you to consider some other things as well. And I think there is that... The exhibition's called Changing Times, and I think you look at aspects of the show and you can't help but thinking, gosh, things are different now. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that worn-out quote, the past is a foreign country, I think that that... It is. I, I do come out of that show feeling like, gosh, things were different in 1968 and things have changed. And that that is a kind of a sense of historical consciousness mm-hmm. beyond just straightforward nostalgia.
4: And I think also... Um Guy and I was speaking a few days ago. something that we've both noticed on sort of tours that we've led as well as just sort of being in the space is a kind of intergenerational dialogue.'ve um, seen I've seen a lot of people where it looks like a parent or a grandparent um, with say an adolescent and they're talking to them speaking with them about the, the 1960s. Um, and that's you know really nice to see. And also um, a lot of um, former librarians are really enjoying the (laughs) exhibition and really sort of taking them back to their their time at the library. And also, you know, Canberrans who have memories of Canberra in 1968. So it it seems to be that there are a couple of different audiences, um, perhaps on top of our regular library exhibition audience, that are are sort of engaging in particular ways, which is really nice.
3: Yeah, I I agree with the idea of there being a, a divide. Uh, between those who can remember and and those who don't. Uh, I think the most pleasing piece of feedback I got from the exhibition was an email from a friend of mine who is only about 30, um, and the email said, conscription, those conscription balls, wow, what a different time. Um, Mm. So that militates against a a kind of nostalgia, and, and, and I think really that nostalgia is is a wonderful thing because it makes us feel nice, but it's something that, as historians, we have to guard against um, because it tends to elide the difference between the, the, the past and the, the present. It move, militates against historicity. And even if it doesn't, even if it does have a sense of um, a difference between the present and the past, you've still got to be on your guard. You've got to be on your guard against a kind of a golden age approach um, which is, I think, part of modernity. I think you, can, you see it for the first time uh, in the Romantic movements in the, in the 19th century mm-hmm. where the, the medieval past is seen as a period, a golden age, a period free of the, the social and the metaphys- metaphysical ills of modernity, um, alienation in particular. Um, so I think really that um, it, it, it's, a, it's a love-hate thing for me with nostalgia and, and I think Guy's on the right track. Um, when he uh, suggests that it can be used positively uh, and, to, and moved on from and to be used in a way that to, gets us thinking about history and what history is, how we remember it, how we create it.
1: Hmm. Well then perhaps one final question, um, now we're on to sort of how we use history, as the theme of the AHA conference is the scale of history, so how does this theme relate to the exhibition?
2: Well, it was a great. When, when, when I knew the Australian Historical Association Conference was on and that its, its topic was the scale of history, I thought this show is a great case study for that. Um, I think I worked on an exhibition some years ago uh, called 1913. I was one of the curators who worked on that. 1913 is another really fascinating year in Australian history where you can see a young nation emerging from federation. A lot of incredible things are happening. but Of course, we all know... And, of course, the people in 1913 didn't know, but we all know that in 1914 it all comes to an end. And I, I find that a really... Uh, I, find, I really enjoyed working on that exhibition, and I think 1968 has some elements of, of that as well, so I love using years. Mm. And I've got my, my antenna out for thinking... Of, Future years, which might (laughs) make good exhibitions. Um, Because I think it's a really interesting way of looking at history, and it works very well, particularly in an institution like this. Because the library is a deposit library, which means we have vacuumed up Australian print material over the last 100 years. So you choose a year or a topic, there's a good chance we'll have something on it. Um, So uh, I think the, the year, in terms of exhibitions, is an extremely useful way of uh, producing interesting (coughs) exhibitions. You've got to choose the right year, though. 1968 was a very good year. Um, You know, uh, 1914 was a good year. But I'm I'm interested in what other years in Australian history might generate an interesting exhibition.
1: Okay, I think we're we're running out of time. So let's throw it open to audience members, if you have questions for the panel. Yeah, please.
5: Thanks. I think you did luck like it with being built in 1968 because when you do see the exhibition, you know, it's so dense. There's so many th- things happened. And I like the. and I thought... Well, while I was listening, I had thought you should do this again, but you've got to, in a way, pick the right year because it was a dynamic year. Um, and I think you've done a wonderful, wonderful job. Thank you. And having been a bit older than all of you, it does, um, you know, Robert Kennedy dying, that assassination was, in our family, we're just just overwhelmed by it after his brother had died. And one can't help wondering, if he hadn't have died, we wouldn't have had Nixon. So that often, you go on from that. But... um, the music in particular, and I don't think I'm being nostalgic, I don't know if, what other year you could pick, or another decade, that that music still resonates today, or it triggered off music that we still know today. You hear it in the supermarkets everywhere, and I know all the words, you know. <laughs> and I don't have a good memory anymore. But... Um, Uh, You know, I look forward to coming again because you've got the wonderful resource. It's marvellous looking at at your lived history. Um, There's so many things I could think of when we went there. The other thing I do think, though, at that time in Australia, whatever happened overseas, in fashion in particular, but other things took years to come to Australia. It's not like today that we see something that's happening and it's immediately adopted Maybe here.
2: that's what was happening with the flares. They
5: hadn't. <laughs> they <laughs> hadn't. They hadn't because I was thinking, We're you on know... The things <laughs> took years. Shops took years to get what was happening in America or, indeed, in London, you know. I even milk. hippiness, I think, took a couple of years. Mm. Um, and Some th-
3: th- are, th- th- did at the time. And yeah. if we go, go forward a decade... Uh, punk music, for example, which I know a bit about myself, um, was a couple of years later in Australia than it At was least a country. couple of years, yeah. I'd say. But, but, but when we're talking about uh, music, uh, we haven't today, of course, uh, in any detail, but uh, I think you're right. I think we've got to acknowledge that the 60s was a particularly dynamic period in, in popular music, and it's a period in which popular music actually pertained to things other than popular music, of course, society at large, Mm. um, youth culture, protests, uh, and so forth. And of course, we're talking about the period just before postmodernism, although it was a little while before people started to use that term, in which um, creativity uh, and dynamism were in fact possible. um, Alas, they are no longer.
5: Yeah, the, other the other thing I think that happened there, <laughs> it was the first time that young people got a voice. Sure.
3: Oh, definitely, yes. You know All the whole idea one? of a generation gap, yeah, um, uh, which, which we still have, uh, to some extent, came from the 1960s. We yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. have a question up the back.
6: Uh, I'd first to comment, actually, uh, in regard to, in regard to Skippy, the reason that I understand from a talk at the NFSA that that, uh, Skippy became a phenomenon in America was because of the Robert Kennedy assassination. He'd been touring America, the distributor had been touring America, going to all the television stations getting knocked back after knockback. He was packing his bags in LA about to take a flight, and these calls came through shortly after the thing I was saying, we need content. Essentially they needed non-violent content on American television, and Skippy was one of the people that was chosen. <laughs> it's a connection we didn't know about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't realised
3: the historical significance of hippie in that sense, uh,
6: Skippy in that sense. Yeah. Also, in regard to the fashion thing, um, it was a do-it-yourself era. Lots of people did it themselves. Flares were made by cutting straight leg jeans and putting V-patches in them. It was that sort of stuff that was going on. Was quite an inventive... That was part of the inventiveness of the period, I think. Um, but I was also wondering, I, according to, I have an older brother who was actually there at the time and described it in great detail. And he says that um, there was like, there were numerous uh, political, cert- and political activists anti-Vietnam Groups that were operating. There was one in Melbourne called Ram, the Radical Action Movement. Uh, and he's I can't remember the names of dozens of others that he <laughs> cited, but they were all pretty protean as far as the development of the left was concerned in Australia. They, uh, the core group, they came out through was through these people who are concerned about Vietnam, and that that actually powered the left for quite a while after the after 68. Just wondering if you could comment on that, and also he said that there were things. There were also things like urban renewal that were really kind of coming to the fore at that time too, and uh, it was like the uh, green bands and all that kind of thing was in in the uh, uh, development. And
2: we um. We we might have to carry on some of this conversation downstairs because I think we're clicking clicking over to five o'clock. But uh, yes, obviously the left in Australia was strongly influenced by a range of groups who were um, radicalised in in the late in 1968, and obviously there were strong links between the labour movement and and and, yeah. other, and the labour party. Dr Jim Cairns, of course, who went on to lead the moratorium. Um, it starts to come to... Arthur Caldwell, too? Arthur Caldwell. So, yes, there's very strong links there.
3: I I would add, though, that the the anti-war movements were far broader than just uh, including left-wing ideology.
2: Mm. Perhaps we can have
7: one last question from the audience. Thank you for that opportunity. I went to university in 1968. It was an opening up for me, and so the whole of the exhibition was very nostalgic. The thing that I am very conscious of, and really following on from that last conversation, is that it was a snapshot and it didn't (coughs) have a sense of the way in which it was propelling Australia forward. And so, um, and the world, in fact, if you think about the consequences of things that happened in Europe in that year um, and the the broadness of the anti-war movement. I mean, I would say easily that that was the year that, politicised me and it was the war and I was involved in student politics with a whole lot of people who went on to be the leaders in the state and federal government. Um, It was a turning point or a fructification or something and I would have loved to have seen some sense of that in the exhibition as well as it being a, a really vibrant snapshot. But thank you for doing it, it was wonderful.
2: That, thanks very much. We, there was definitely many more things which we could have done. And uh, I, I tell my team often that exhibitions are... It's like the tip of the iceberg, and all the work and other things which we think about, they're under the water, but they don't actually make it into the show. Um, but I think we crammed as much into the 500 square metres as we could.
0: Well, thank you very much, Walter, Grace and Guy and Ben, for sharing with us your insights on 1968, lived or otherwise, Grace. <laughs> It's been really interesting to hear how your experiences or uh, the wires of 1968 have shaped the exhibition and what you were bringing to the exhibition as well. So thank you and please join me with, in- with thanking <clears> Thank <throat> you. So as we draw to a close, I'd like to thank the Australian History Association and the Australian National University for supporting today's event. And I'd like to thank you all for joining us here this afternoon. The 1968 exhibition is now open downstairs in our gallery for the next hour or so. And Guy, Grace and Walter will be down there as well to carry on the conversation and to answer any of your other questions that you might have. Please also join us in the foyer for refreshments. Once again, thank you for coming today, and I hope to see you again at your National Library soon. (laughs) Thank you.